Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of Obamacare. And Richard, in recent years, it seems like every time we've been talking about Obamacare, it's been about legal challenges. Uh, today, we have an opportunity to talk about it on the merits. We've got news coming out that Aetna, which is one of the biggest health insurers in the country, is going to pull out of most of the Obamacare insurance exchanges in which it's participating, 11 out of the 15 states where they're currently involved. And they're not the first ones. We've seen other big insurers like Humana and United Health Group. They've been making similar decisions. And basically their argument is this comes down to just not being very good business for them, Richard. So what, from a public policy perspective, what's going wrong here? Why don't these markets work for these insurers? Well, the first thing to note about these markets is they're not competitive markets in the way in which the term marketplace suggests. In order to enter into the market, you have to agree to some very precise limitations as to the kinds of policies that you're going to offer and the way in which you're going to structure your internal operation. Uh, it's very clear to me that when they put these things together, they ignore the two fundamental dangers that are always associated with insurance and make all of these policies fragile. Uh, the first of them is the problem of adverse selection. And essentially what adverse selection means that if in fact you give coverage for a certain kind of event, those people who know that they are likely to have those events, i.e. to become sick, are much more likely to buy the coverage than people who are healthy. And as the premiums go up to cover those sick people, the healthier people in larger numbers start to withdraw from the program until financially it becomes unviable. That's called the death spiral. And it has happened in a number of areas like community rating programs, for example, which didn't take into account the risk of AIDS. So that's the first problem that one has to face. The second problem, which is less, is the moral hazard problem, which says that your basic conduct is likely to tilt in a way in which the covered events are more likely to occur precisely because the cost to you is lower given the fact that you have the insurance. So whenever you look at market-based insurance policies, there's always designed in a fashion whose purpose is to make sure that adverse selection in particular doesn't overwhelm the system. But the folks who put together Obamacare didn't care about that at all. And so what they thought is that if you just have these open periods, uh, people would sign up and they would get a random mix of people which would make the policies work. They also thought wrongly again that in the first year it might be a little bit rough, but in the second and third years it would get better. But in fact, it's gone exactly the opposite way. Um, because since they didn't attend to adverse selection, and we could talk later about why it is that they missed this, um, as you have to the annual renewal people periods, all the people know more about the system, so they're more willing to game it, which means that people sign up the day or the week before they need some medical procedure and sign off thereafter. And there's no way that you could recoup this from healthy younger people because they are fleeing these programs in droves. And so given this kind of imbalance, unless you fundamentally reorient the program, they're going to be net losers for all the insurance companies that issue them, which is why it is that they're pulling out from these markets in droves. You've been a skeptic of Obamacare since day one. What, if anything, about the way that this has played out over the past several years surprises you? 
Um, actually, nothing has surprised me. Um, <laughs> what happens is these things are never as clear as you think they are, and so you tend to miss what's important and not important in the way in which the system starts to operate. And in this particular case, I think the factor that everybody tended to underestimate was the learning curve, which was associated with annual renewals. Uh, the Obamacare projections were, well, first people will sign up, they will like what they see, there's a subsidy associated with it, and then in the next year you'll get more, in the year after that, you'll get more still. Uh, but what people did is if they were healthy, they signed up, they realized they paid a healthy premium, and they got relatively little in exchange. And those people who didn't sign up and were sick realized that, hey, if they got into these programs a week or a month before they really needed a major procedure, they could do very well. So instead of moving into a stable equilibrium in which a healthy and sick people sign up in equal proportion, it turns out that on the annual renewal rates, things kept getting worse period after period. And this is extremely important because the companies, when they rate stuff, they rate it dynamically. They figure out which way the trend line is moving and then they try to anticipate what's going to happen in the next year. When you look at regulators, and this is a ghastly complicated system on regulation, they tend to look retroactively. These were the numbers that you had in the last period, so this is the kind of rate that we're going to give you in the next period, not taking into account the potential deterioration in the pool. And so as you have to go through these elaborate review processes on your premiums, you realize that there's going to be more and more resistance to the raises and more and more cost associated with the operation of the program. Uh, so what essentially you decide to do is to withdraw. Uh, this is not just the question of the big companies. There are many uh, companies that were specifically created to form state insurance pools, and the vast majority of them have gone bankrupt as well. This is something that will clearly plague seniors. Um, rather single payer because when they tried that in Vermont the same kind of problem took place uh, the effects are much stronger than the uh, cynics want to believe and given that particular power there's no surprise here uh, in some sense the only surprise is why it took three four or five years for the program to reach its crisis proportion on the left to, to the extent that there are concessions about Obamacare's shortcomings, the prescription is usually more active government intervention in the health care system. Hillary Clinton, for instance, has proposed – using a phrase that might be familiar to people who remember the Obamacare fights – the use of a public option in health care, which she characterizes that as the ability to buy into Medicaid. Um, Richard, give us a little refresher course on what a public option is is and what a world in which we had one would look like. Well, this is a frightening prospect again. What the public option was when it was proposed back in uh, 2009-2010 was to say where it turned out that you had private markets, what you would also do is to allow a public agency to form and to sell the product in direct competition with the private firms. And it was also understood at some level that they would get certain kinds of benefits that the private firms did not get. And all the private firms essentially said, look, if you're going to put this kind of a public option in, um, and your, their costs are going to be covered by direct expenditures and ours are not, or at least to the same degree, uh, the public option is going to drive us out of business so we can't do it. 
Uh, in the recent democratic platform, now that there's a disintegration that one starts to see um, in the private markets, the Democrats propose that you put in a public option in those places where it turns out that the private plans are not in sufficient numbers. Uh, well, if you put this plan into place, the size of the subsidy that you're going to need is going to be, if anything, larger than it is on the private plan because the renowned experience of government incompetence in running any and all programs is sufficiently important that it will, in the end, essentially depreciate the total currency. And what you will see with the public option is essentially a single-payer health care system um, which will suffer all the pains of government monopolies. There's no control on cost. There's no control on entry. Uh, the political accountability is very weak. And all of the money-saving devices that private insurance companies put into place to run their own plans will systematically be disregarded. Fraud levels will start to increase. And the whole thing will essentially careen down into a very, very bad system. What one hopes at the moment is that there's enough modesty in this administration or the one that follows so they don't try and use the same kind of elaborate restraints they put in the individual market on the employer's side. My guess is that they're going to slow walk that thing, which is probably good as an economic matter, and that most employers, knowing that their own workers will have a devil of a time going into the individual market, will continue to provide the insurance that was otherwise the case. So let's hope that this public option never comes to pass. But when it comes to a fountain of bad ideas, the Democratic national platform is rich in ideas, none of which ought to see the light of day. (laughs) In our previous conversations about this and in a lot of your recent writing, you always point to Obamacare as a big drag on the economy. And I want to drill down on that with you a little bit and get a sense of how big. So run this hypothetical for me, Richard. If you're if you're president and we get a lot of the economic reforms that you and I talked about in a previous episode. So you flatten the tax code, you open up international trade, you reduce the regulatory burdens in other areas besides healthcare. If I get you all that, but Obamacare stays in place essentially as is, is there still a significant drag on the American economy? Well, it has to be. I mean, look, the, the base will be somewhat larger so that people can tolerate this particular dislocation given the fact that the others have been removed. Uh, but this is a very serious dislocation associated with the system. Um, if you don't know exactly what the regulatory framework is going to look like, you have compliance costs on the one hand and you have uncertainty on the other and you have to deliver a product which the government thinks is desirable but none of your clients turns out to do. Uh, so one of of the great mistakes that they made when they put this thing together is they start talking about tiers of coverage, gold, silver, platinum, bronze, whatever it is. And it, look, if you look at the young people in particular, if they take any plan, they always take the cheapest plan that is available because they don't want many of the stuff which the government program does. So if you keep these programs in place and you continue to force people to buy things that they don't want or they don't need, that's going to be an implicit cost which will break down the health care system even further. Uh, so you have that problem. The second problem is the coverage issue and the notch problem. We see this everywhere. 
If you say that part-time workers are not covered and full-time workers are, you come into a point where there's a cliff. And the moment you get yourself into the coverage situation, you have to pay a great deal more money for these workers for things that they really don't want to have. Uh, So what happens is you decide to give people less work so as to avoid the particular problem in question. Well, once you do that, it screws up everything else that's associated with the economy because the optimal job is not typically 25 or 30. 30 hours. It's usually a 40-hour week. You can't do that. Now you're taking in two or three people where before you needed only one or two. Uh, Trying to figure out how you coordinate schedules becomes more costly, and all the indirect costs start to ripple through the system. On the other hand, if you start looking at the way in which the compliance burdens take place, there's yet another problem. Uh, There has been a huge increase in the concentration in healthcare industry because of the large number of mergers that start to take place. And the basic intuition here is pretty clear. Compliance costs from government have a very high fixed cost component and a relatively low variable cost component. So if you have two separate companies that are moderately small, those fixed costs are very large. You join them together, it goes down. This happens with respect to various kinds of service providers, and it also happens with respect to hospital systems, which will tend to get larger because the big university hospitals and religious hospitals, for example, can figure out how to game Obamacare far better than the small community hospitals that they're taking over, and so you see less choice taking place, which means that there's an antitrust implication associated with what's going on. So what I can say with a complete confidence is that the effects will be negative in terms of the large-scale economic recovery. What I can't tell you is exactly what the magnitude is, uh, because I'm not an empiricist who does this stuff, and just to make the record clear, most of the people who do do this stuff find that there's so many variables that you have to control, and so few data points that you can use to it that their estimates tend to be very broad and have very low confidence intervals associated with them. There's a school of thought out there, I think it's grown the further we get away from Obamacare's passage, that outright repeal of the law is as a political matter going to be a non-starter. The programs like this sort of inevitably calcify with time. So let's just assume that argument for a moment. Walk me through the remedies in a second best world? If you can only chip away or replace certain aspects of Obamacare, what are the most valuable targets? Well, I mean, look, these are the same ones that I suggested five or six years ago when this thing first <laughs> came up. I was never Mr. Armageddon saying that, you know, I want the whole thing to blow up and thousands and millions of people to go without health care or insurance. So what you want to do is to figure out what the defects are and you fix them. Well, here's the first one. You start to have waiting periods, maybe three weeks, maybe a month, maybe two months, and then you tell people if you're going to buy this kind of coverage you're in for at least a year, you cannot terminate at will. And this is a pretty powerful way to combat some, at least some of the adverse selection problem in terms of what the business is. Right? The second thing you do is there's something known as the medical loss ratio because the great Solons in Washington decided that anything which is spent on administration is a waste, so you wanted them to spend as little as possible on that and as more as much as possible possible on direct health care. Well, the line between direct health care and administration is not that clear. You give women a seminar telling them the risk of breast chances. Is that administrative or is that medical? You're not treating people, but you're giving them kinds of advice. And it turns out that the folks in Washington got the wrong ratios. Uh, they let too little money go to fraud control, to administrative instructions, to advertisement, to these various plans. And essentially what the firm will do is it will say is the ex- last 
last dollar that we spend on direct patient care giving us as much benefit to our consumers as they would get from fraud control or any one of these other devices. So you just remove the medical loss ratios and let the companies decide the way in which they want to do this. Uh, The third thing you might want to do is to give much more flexibility with respect to premiums in terms of the way in which they're going because you do not want to have the current system which forces people to take folks in when they don't want to. And then what they try to do is on a retrospective basis figure out which of these plans have gotten the bad mix of customers and which have gotten the good mix of customers and then have the good mix of customer firms subsidize the bad risk of customer firms. This is extremely costly, extremely cumbersome and it becomes absolutely bizarre because the administrative costs can swamp all the gains out of this thing particularly when it turns out that your best run companies are also losing money even at a lower rate than anybody else. Uh, So what you have to do essentially is to get rid of all of this kind of stuff inside the program. Then you have to be much more willing to allow interstate competition to take place inside these markets in the hope that if you get four or five of these companies in, it will give you the kind of density which means that you don't have the single monopoly problem. The Obamacare solution, the administration has this wrong mindset. It says whenever we see that competition has failed, we keep regulation and taxation in place because they don't do any harm to anybody. Just ask anybody in the government and then we try to throw on a subsidy. What they need to do is to say, if competition isn't working, you've got to get more firms in to compete. And the way in which you do that is essentially get down the barriers to entry. And if you want another kind of solution that you can do on this is be much more sympathetic to the way in which corporate practice of medicine takes place without having state licensing requirements basically be a barrier to entry in this. One of the odd, nice features about Obamacare, and it's an irony, is that in those places where the coverage remains, the deductibles have become extraordinarily high, which means that for most routine care, people have no insurance at all. And so what they do is they start looking around for people like CityMD and so forth. And, you know, these places are designed to deal with families of all income levels to figure out how to treat simple things on the premise and to know when to send somebody to the hospital. My wife went to one of these clinics the, about two months ago and it turned out she had a case of blood poisoning or something like that. And they said, lady, we can't treat you. Off you go to Northwestern Hospital. And, you know, she had to be hospitalized. And what you do is you want people to get into these places quickly so that they can sort. What these places can do is they can treat the easy stuff and send the other stuff to more expensive care. And the whole entrepreneurial side of the medical system is being snuffed out by Obamacare, except for the fact that it's been such an abysmal failure on the coverage side uh, that the deductible means that there's now a private market that's emerging, which is much more innovative and much more effective than anything that the folks in either Cambridge or in Washington can design for the rest of us. So the final question I'll put to you, Richard. Yesterday, Gallup released a poll that it, it does on a regular basis of Americans' attitudes about different um, businesses, different sectors of the economy. They looked at about two dozen fields, and there were only five where Americans had a net negative opinion of the industry. The federal government was dead last, net negative 27 points. But the other two closest to the bottom were the healthcare industry with a net negative of 20 points and the pharmaceutical industry with a net negative of 23. Is the public discontent there justified? 
Well, it's justified about the unhappy performance of these industries, but it's not at all clear that you want to attribute this to the private operation, which I think is a very different proposition. So, for example, um, if you're trying to talk about drug levels of innovation in prices, to simply look at the companies and not to look at the FDA policies with respect to the admission of new drugs on the marketplace or the huge complicated reimbursement programs that are required in state aid programs, Medicare programs, and Medicaid programs, is to miss a very large part of the picture. And if you take these things and to put them into account, uh, what happens is I think that the kitchen looks much better. There have been, for example, real questions about saying, well, you know, these guys raise the price of these generic drugs and they get themselves an absolute fortune. And then what happens is somebody says, you know, there was this German company that was willing to come in and sell the drug at 10% of the price of the American incumbent, but the FDA kept them out until they went through the appropriate kinds of forms which they can do without difficulty in a period of 36 months. And if you simply had the rule on the FDA side, uh, which said, look, ladies and gentlemen, if you are approved in some reputable Western company, you get to sell your drug in the dosages that are sold over there, no questions asked. And then if the FDA, after it's in market, thinks there's something wrong, perhaps it could pull it. But we are very jingoistic in terms of the way in which we do things, and approvals by other countries are not treated as information as value. Long successful uses in other countries are ignored. This means that you create these monopoly walls through FDA healthcare regulation, which completely distorts the overall operation of the system. And people don't know this. Just the way they don't know why the problem with free trade is so difficult when you're trying to figure out how you get a new job. You've got all these entry decisions that are local. Whenever you get displaced from a job where you've got some monopoly protection, it's going to be devilishly difficult to land again. Don't go after free trade. Go after the restrictions. On the healthcare side, we call this a private market. But uh, just to give you one kind of simple figure in a state like Illinois, you know, one of the great malgoverned states in the United States, there are probably about 100 or 150 individual mandates on the purchase of employer insurance. And what these mandates do is they make you buy things that you don't want. And so all of a sudden, the prices start to go up and the coverage levels start to go down. If you look at this nationally, over the last 30 years, somehow or other, we've managed to lose 10% of the employer market, which is roughly speaking, 15 million people become uninsured by their employer because because of the mandate. Uh, so in all of these cases, you always have to worry about private risk. There may be some monopoly problems lurking in the background, although these are generally overrated. But if you're going to start to look first, you'll look for the obvious things. And those are cross-subsidies on the one hand and barriers to entry on the other. And if you were to look at those, what you would say is, you know why you guys hate Congress so much? You should hate them even more than you do. Uh, because what these yokels do is to authorize the system which makes it impossible for heavily regulated industries, of which healthcare and the pharmaceuticals are two of the primary ones, to operate in a sensible fashion. People are going to start hating their bankers soon because of Dodd-Frank. Uh, we live in a world in which the dominant political parties say that the failure of regulation means that we need more regulation. The correct answer is that the failure of regulation means that we have to reconsider very critically the regulation that we now have in place. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. 
For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.